My guest, Marjorie Perloff, is a professor and critic, but these terms don't begin to describe the reach of a career that spanned almost six decades. Perloff's work is marked by restlessness, insatiable curiosity, and a profound belief in what she's described as the absolute value, the irreplaceability of poetry. To this end, she's written, by my count, 15 books. Later this year, the University of Chicago Press will publish In for Thin, an experiment in micropoetics, and she's currently also in the midst of translating Ludwig Wittgenstein's War Diaries. This tally doesn't include the volumes that she's edited, the hundreds of essays and reviews she's published, nor the enormous influence her thinking has had. The range of her enthusiasms is impossible to describe briefly, but it spans the poetry of William Butler Yeats, Ezra Pound, Frank O'Hara, John Cage, Augusto de Campos, and Kenneth Goldsmith. Marjorie, you've said the entrances to the paradise of aesthetics are everywhere, some of them homespun, some of them rough attempts to sketch a self out of whatever materials are at hand, but they lead someplace toward heightened perceptiveness. At this moment, I'm grateful for poetry in any permutation, in any form, even poetry I don't like. It's a sign of hope, a sign which marks an attempt to blow on the coals of an old, old fire. In what ways, Marjorie, and at what times in your life has poetry been especially important in giving you hope? Richard, I don't remember ever making that quote. Where do I make that? I can find it for you. Doesn't sound like me at all. I didn't make it up, I promise. (laughs) I'm sure you didn't make it up, but it's interesting because I don't think I do feel that way. Not now. (laughs) I'm kind of down. Do you mean that you don't feel that poetry provides hope? No. (laughs) We can have a very interesting conversation about that. I think, yes, great poetry certainly, uh, I don't know if it provides hope, but it's just the greatest pleasure And the most important thing, and language, poetry is the language art, and wonderful language. In my new book, I talk all about that, what a difference it makes. I agree with W.H. Auden, poetry makes nothing happen. It's very important, but it doesn't provide hope. (laughs) Sorry. Let me pick up the last part of that quote, because it's a really beautiful image there. You describe poetry as an old, old fire. I really like that because it conjures the notion of history that needs stoking, that's being turned over so that the old bed of coals feeds the fire that requires constant attention and care. Uh I recently read an interview with the British artist Steve McQueen, who said, in order to go forward, we have to go back. And you've said you can't make something completely new and not know what's come before. Yes. That strikes me as something that's taken for granted in Europe, but much less so in the U.S., where Henry Ford's notion of history as bunk is an axiom for many. Why can't one make something new without knowing what's come before? That's a very good question. First of all, if you're a critic like me, not a poet, after all, the poets themselves were aware of everything before. Somebody like John Ashbery, every line is taken. It could be from a medieval poem. It could be from a popular song, but it could be from some historical event. I agree with Ernst Gombrich said this about art long ago. Poetry is made out of other poetry. Poetry is not made by looking out the window or seeing the sunset over Laguna Beach. Poetry is really 
made out of other poetry. And you can see that just by thinking this way. When you're a child or, let's say, a teenager, and somebody talks about poetry, well, what is your very notion of what a poem is? It's some other poem you've read. You're not making it up, and it's just spilling out. It's not the expression of powerful feelings in themselves. You have some image of what a poem should be and what poetry should be. And you begin with that image. And of course, the great poets then alter that and move it on to something else and bring in something new and bring in, especially I feel very strongly about that, and something you do, Richard, bring in the spirit of their own age. Today, it would be impossible to produce poetry, I think, without taking the digital into account to some extent because it rules our lives. And so it is a shame that we don't do more with the past now. We have now in creative writing courses where they only read contemporary work. And I know other people who, in their courses on the contrary, only do earlier work. And I think that would be much more useful in a way, although I don't really feel that John Ashbery used to teach at Brooklyn College by having them all write pantoums or all write sestinas so that they would learn what those forms are. I don't know that that's necessary, but I think it's just very important to read earlier poetry. Without that, you really have nothing to write about because you're not, in fact, writing about your own emotions. Why should they be interesting to anybody else? You're writing about them mediated and filtered by earlier poetry. You've also made some very specific demands of poetry. For example, you said, if the heaven of poetry will not allow us to think about our situation in the world, about the terrors and possibilities of the hour, then I don't want to go there as a writer or a reader. What would you say to those who argue that the role of art is precisely to offer relief from the terrors of the hour? I just don't think that is the role of art because I don't think artists have any particular insight into politics or economics or what's really going on in the world. On the contrary, many of our greatest poets have been when it comes to politics, like Ezra Pound, like Gertrude Stein, even Joyce have been, their views have been pretty terrible. And I think the first thing that I would want say, students to learn, is that poets are not nice people. They don't need to be nice people. And they don't need to be said good people who have the right ideas about things. What makes a poet great is that they somehow do represent their time. And you can represent your time by, in fact, being pretty nasty, if it's a pretty nasty time. Jerome McGann wrote a wonderful piece years ago in Critical Inquiry about Ezra Pound, where he pointed that out, where he said the reason that Pound is important is precisely he represents the confusion, the terror, the nastiness of the period between the wars, the coming of Hitler, and so on, but not because he voiced powerful positive sentiments. I think just the opposite. I think some of the worst poets are the ones who write odes about the Vietnam War or something, which they haven't participated in or suffered in. And that kind of poetry always bothers me, because what do they know that other people don't know? I mean, why are they so knowledgeable? In other words, you could argue that under any political system, you as a poet, or I as a critic, we are part of the system. We are very much part of the system. We are not above the system. So let's say in the era of Trump, I always said he was a symptom, not a cause. He was a symptom of what the society is like anyway. Not that he was just an individual who did bad things. 
I think this notion today about, oh, let's have a poetry reading, and it's so wonderful, and it's going to argue for political this or that, it doesn't really do anything. It makes no difference at all. No difference at all, because the public doesn't care anyway. I would say it's like church. It's like going to church. You feel a little uplift, and you think, oh, for five minutes I did something worthwhile, and then you go right on doing the same things you're doing. And so I feel it's very depressing, actually. Well, we're going to come back a little bit later to talk about poets being good people or not good people. But for now, Marjorie, let's hear about the first book that you selected for your list. Anna Karen and I read it about once a year. I mean, Tolstoy, it could have been War and Peace, but Anna's even greater. I think it's the perfect novel, pretty much. It's really the perfect novel because it's a quality only Tolstoy has. Lifelike is a kind of cliche, but it is lifelike in the sense that everybody has two sides. Nobody's all good or all bad. The affair between Anna and Vronsky is inevitable, and it tells you so much about that society. Nobody's right. Nobody's wrong. So you just get these incredible poignancy and emotions of the whole thing working itself out. Tolstoy works by contrast. He seems to be writing something very simple, but the selectivity is amazing. And to me, art is a matter of selection. When you get down to conceptual art today, it's what you select, isn't it, that matters and how you select it. Tolstoy was a genius at various things. One was selection. A second one is time, the treatment of time. Characters evolve just the way they would evolve in real life. They change. We all change. And so you don't get sort of set characters in any kind. You get this wonderful composition that is like a large poem in a way, where everybody is created according to the way they are contrasted to others. So Tolstoy was able to create this incredible love story, but characterizing an entire society on the eve of its kind of ending, upper-class Russian society for all time, and in what seems like simple language, there's not a word in Anna Karenina that I suppose anybody couldn't read or figure out what it means, but it's a question, the basic questions about life. What does it mean to live? What does it mean to die? How do you live a good life? What do you do? So to me, it's the ultimate novel. There's never been one quite like it. Marjorie, how old were you when you first read Anna Karenina? When I first read Anna, I was about 14. And I skipped the parts about leaven and agriculture. When I first read it, I thought, oh, I don't need to read all that about agriculture and what is Lenin going to grow. And, you know, Lenin is, Le- leaven is Anna's alter ego. You have all the scenes about mowing and how he wants to be like a peasant, but he can't really be one of the peasants. And so I remember skipping those and only reading the Anna parts. Now when I read it, I actually like the Levin parts in some ways even better. They're just so wonderfully done. And some of the minor parts. There's so many 19th century adultery novels, and even today, novels like that, but they never get to the heart of the matter the way Tolstoy could, because he could deal with the smallest gesture, the way somebody raises her little finger, or the way somebody crosses his legs, and you would know what they are. Marjorie, you said that you feel a strong desire to protect poetry, and yet you've also said that it's embattled. And I just want to quote you here. You said, the stubborn individuality and privacy of reading, the quiet and transformative conversation between reader and book is in trouble. 
Everyone knows this. What, if anything, do you think we can do to turn this around? Or do you think that reading will once again become the domain of a privileged few as it was before the invention of the printing press? Actually, no, I don't. And I think it will be a good time for poetry again. This is what I think. We might as well get to that now. Yeah, early on in a way. When I first went to graduate school, you know, I studied the modernists. I did my dissertation on Yeats, studied major poems. And I didn't do even know somebody like Frank O'Hara. I wrote a book on Robert Lowell, both pro and con, and poets like Frank O'Hara because we certainly didn't study them in school. When I studied those poets, which was not until the later 70s, what a wonderful poetic world it was. And then language poetry came along, which I thought was breath of fresh air, and then concrete poetry, which is very important to me, and I think is really the most important poetry right now in a way. But then I think we took a a really wrong turn by the beginning of the 21st century, and maybe I'm just too old for it, but I think what's happened with identity politics is destroying poetry. 90% of what is written now and presented in the mainstream press as poetry is really not poetry at all. Why is it poetry? It's only lineated prose. I think it is just a very bad moment, and that moment will change again, and I don't know quite how it will change, but of course it will change, and I think the other important point is this. You don't have great art in every country at every time, and right now I think there probably is great poetry being written in Latin America, written in India. I've read wonderful things about Arab poetry, but I think in the United States and in England, well, English poetry has been nothing for years. Poetry is not where it's at. In other words, it's not the art, despite certain exceptions like Peter Gissy, like Charles Bernstein, Susan Howe, who's my great favorite, a few others. Poetry is not the important art right now. It just isn't. It will be again. And I think people do read and they will continue to read. But right now we're in a lull and that isn't so bad. There was a similar time at the beginning of the 20th century. So I would say the beginning of the 21st century is very much like the beginning of the 20th century where T.S. Eliot was asked, why were you so influenced by the French? Why did you turn to La Fogue? and Baudelaire, etc. And he said, frankly, for somebody coming of age, I think he said 1908, there was no American poet to turn to. Emily Dickinson hadn't been rediscovered yet. Nobody really knew her. And he knew Whitman, of course, but he said, I'm not like Whitman. I can't write like Whitman. There really was no example. There was nobody, you know, there were all the poetesses like Edna St. Vincent Millay. There was Edward Arlington Robinson. And he didn't really care for the late Victorians that much. And there was really no example. If you look at an anthology, like the anthology I helped work on, you know, I worked on the Library of America anthology of 20th century poetry, only up to about, I think it goes to the 19th. 40s, something like that. And there were five of us who did that. We picked poets to include. And that was, by the way, when we picked John Cage and Helen Vendler was very exercised. She said he's not a poet at all. But anyway, we more or less agreed, actually, on most of the people. And what was fascinating to do that, Richard, was that when you went chronologically, which it does, the first hundred pages are a little bit boring. There are all kinds of poems about winter weather and love, love poems and sorrow poems and so forth. And then you suddenly turn the page and you come to this poem that goes, let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. 
Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. So wonderful. Every word counts. Every syllable counts. And that changed poetry. It caused a whole revolution. And after that, you had many poets, many modernists, wonderful group of poets, where modern American poetry becomes very important. But let's get real. Right now, it isn't important. You've cited some things that you would say are not poetry. And then you mentioned Helen Vendler, who was upset about Cage because she didn't think that his writing was poetry. I'm interested to know if you can, and I understand that this is difficult to do briefly, what is it that makes something poetry? Well, that's what my new book is all. Infrathin, I should have actually sent it to you, the proofs. That's what Infrathin is all about. When I talk about Duchamp and microstructure, what makes something poetry? Okay, the difference between the poet and the ordinary person, and I use the example of Haroldo de Campos when he was talking about Baudelaire, and he said, in ordinary life, we don't think of stars and disasters going together. You know, you might be talking about a disaster. You might be talking about stars, but you don't think of them together. But for the poet, the root in French, astre and désastre, and Baudelaire rhymes them. And of course, what is a disaster? It means the stars are not there for you. It's not in the stars to do well. So the words in Klebnikov, the Russian poet, did this all the time. He would take etymologies and show you that you think sun, salt, Snow, don't go together. But in fact, when you study the etymologies, they do. The poet is that person who has a sense of language that everything relates to everything else. Whereas in ordinary conversation, you might use exactly the same words. It's not memorable. The poet is that person who knows that the language has to really resonate. So poetry is the art of rereading. You cannot read poetry once. You have to always reread it because when you reread it, you find all kinds of things that are important, unlike a novel by Dickens, or you feel you could go straightforwardly through the narrative. Steve McCaffrey used to say about rereading that in poetry, you don't go to the end of the, uh, and, and read consecutively. You go back to the beginning and it's a spatial construct as much as a temporal construct and everything has to matter. Everything has to count. And if you have a lot of stuff in it that doesn't count, it's just not anything much. I actually think it's very easy to define poetry in a certain way. It's not a matter of a particular technique. I agree with Berger, you know, who long ago said, don't fetishize techniques. Collage is a great poetry technique today. But after all, Hallmark cards use collage too. Greeting cards use collage. So it's not a matter of any one technique uh, or it doesn't have to be lineated. It can be prose poetry. David Anton, I think, really taught me that. It's the language art. And that means you have to use language in a different way from the way the ordinary person uses language. Marjorie, let's hear about the second book on your list. I put down the list Goethe's lyric poems. Now, of course, there are many editions of the lyric poems. It's hard to call it a book as such. But Goethe, born 1749, is to me, partly that's my Germanic heritage. Nobody in English feels that way because you really doesn't translate very well. The lyric poetry is the ultimate lyric poet, exactly what I was just talking about. Everything counts. And Goethe wrote primarily occasional poems. 
if he was writing a love letter to Charlotte von Stein, who's the married woman he was in love with, he was had to work for the Duke of Weimar, and he's up in some cave, and they're going to spend the night there. He'll write the poem on the wall of the cave, dash it off sometimes, absolutely understanding that sound is just as important as meaning, that sound creates meaning. You get very short poems often that every school child used to learn by heart. And by the way, that's a main feature of poetry, I think, is memorability. If something is completely unmemorable, that you can't ever remember even three lines of it, memorability is a very fascinating thing, what makes something memorable. Goethe was somebody that school children used to have to memorize, and one of his famous poems was called Wanderers Nachtlied, The Wanderer's Night Song. There's a prose version of it, which is just that he writes to his beloved, he writes to his mistress, up here, it's been a very difficult day, but now it's all very still, it's getting dark, and I'm beginning to hear the bird song, and I'm going to rest, and I hope you're all right, and can't wait to see you, something like that. And then he writes this eight-line poem that goes, Über alle Gipfeln ist Ruhe, in allen Wiffel spürest du kaum einen Hauch, die Vögelein schweigen im Walde, warte nur balde, ruhest du auch. Hauch and auch. So the idea is, it's quiet up in the mountains. There's barely a breath. And then you get this longer line that the little birds are silent in the trees. And then just wait. Soon you will rest too. And you have auch rhyming with hauch. But you could turn it around and have ruest auch du. And then du would rhyme with the earlier line. So that the whole thing is really almost like a musical composition. And a very simple thing about rest, now people have speculated all kinds of things that he's really foreseeing death, that it's about death, the final rest of death. I don't think you need to read it that way at all, but it's just so striking and has this unique voice and not too much is said. So Goethe wrote poems after poems like this, and maybe one of his most beautiful books within the collected poems is the West East you would love that. The West East Divan, the West Östliche Divan, which are really very sexy, erotic poems that he wrote when he was in Rome to his particular mistress there, and that are, that are often quite edgy and nasty in certain ways. And just nobody could create lyric that was that great. To me, he makes Wordsworth look, I mean, Wordsworth is fine, but compared to Goethe, can't compare. So you have great periods of lyric poetry, and then you have other periods where the things are more like the kind of work you do, Richard. So I don't think we have to worry so much about poetry. As Wittgenstein about, said about logic, poetry will take care of itself. It's never going to go away. It's just right now is in a very bad state because the secondary discourse is so bad. Earlier, you defined poetry as specifically as something that uses language, yet the word poetic is used very freely. Is it possible, do you think, to make a poem that's a video? Absolutely. You see, I think when new techniques come in, this I really do believe, and I think you and I agree with that, I think once new techniques come in, obviously the poet has to use them in a way. You can't pretend they're not there. The whole way we live today, the way we move today, the digital... I think the spatial has become increasingly important. When I said before that how much I I think concrete poetry is important, here's an interesting point. I long ago met the DeCampos brothers via Mary Ellen Soltz, 
wonderful book on concrete poetry. In America, concrete poetry never really caught on. I guess it wasn't didactic enough. Everybody said, oh, that's just craft. It's just playful. Or it's like advertising. That's not art. Concrete poetry is now at least 60 years old or so. One thing Augusto did that is just brilliant is that he has this little piece. You have to see a wonderful visual piece called Cogito, which was an anagram for many things. And I think it was done in 1960. Then he made a bigger piece of it. Then he made a thing that you could look through. Then he made one that's, that's a video that moves. And then there's one that Kitano Veloso sings. This is what really interests me. The way Augusto has come into the present is he taught himself a lot of things with the computer. He's very good with it. And I'll give you another example of something that I think is just marvelous. Augusto's son is a musician. It's just lucky he is. And they work together and they did a piece called Moby, which is based on Moby Dick. And again, it's a very short little piece in Portuguese, but easy to translate. And it just has a few words. But the truth is, he couldn't have written it without really knowing Moby Dick, the novel, and Ishmael. And meanwhile, he has video going, beautiful video of ocean waves, but there are all kinds of other things going on. And then there's music, so that he transformed his own little concrete poem and then turned it into a slightly different piece. So I think today we look at artworks and we no longer think it's a set poem, like a block of print with white space around it, but on the contrary, that it can change. It can change and become something else, and then it can become something else. I do think that any visual poetry, to me, is some of the most interesting work done. I'm a lover of Ian Hamilton Finley. I love Augusto. Again, they're not mostly from the United States, although you did have people like Carl Andre, and I love I love those artworks. I think they're really fascinating, what one can do with minimal work. So that's one of my personal favorite things. Marjorie, you were born in Vienna in 1931. Your name was Gabriella Mintz. You were raised in a highly educated, upper-middle-class, secular Jewish family, one that very much saw itself as Austrian. On March the 12th, 1938, when you were six and a half years old, the Nazis annexed Austria, and the next day, March 13th, your family fled to Switzerland and later on to the United States. And you wrote about this in your book, The Vienna Paradox, in which there's a moment that I think really sums up the irony of the situation. Your train stopped at Innsbruck, where there was a real concern that you might not be allowed to travel further. And while you waited, you read a book, and then you went to the restaurant in the train station where your mother gave you a ham sandwich to eat. (laughs) So there you were, a Jewish family fleeing Austria in fear of your lives, eating food that's forbidden to observant Jews. It raises one of the key questions of the Vienna Paradox. What is it that makes one Jewish? Specifically, I'm interested in what being Jewish means to you. That's great. I've been thinking a lot about that. You know, as you get older, your past becomes more important. When I was very young, I wanted to be only, as I say in the book, a true blue American. I'd had nothing very much to do with Jewish at all. I mean, uh, I maybe I ran into anti-Semitism and so forth, but my family was completely unobservant. On the contrary, they had an Easter egg hunts and we always had a Christmas tree. 
in Vienna, in, in this country too. And what makes one a Jew? Ernst Gombrich said Hitler made one a Jew. In other words, what made one a Jew is that other people recognized you as a Jew. And so you began to have some Jewish solidarity. I'm supposed to go to Vienna in June. I don't know if the trip will come off. But if I go, I'm supposed to speak on the topic of emigration. The person who invited me sent me a wonderful book he's written about the cultural brain drain from Austria in 1938, where something like 30,000 Jews left in that one year. The entire culture was not just Austrian. It was, in fact, Austro-Jewish culture. So whether it was music, whether it was the writers, whether it was the economists, the psychoanalysts, literally the entire group of psychologists, psychoanalysts, they all left, came to London or the United States or whatever, and the culture was drained out. How I feel about it now is this. It has nothing to do with religion. For me, I don't like the religion, actually. I don't want to be the chosen people or fast or go back to those things. I think there's something very primitive about it that I don't, in fact, like. But where I do a lie. It's a question of ethnicity. Now, the ethnicities vary very much too. The Viennese upper class Jews are very different from, say, somebody, well, like my own husband, whose parents were Russian immigrant Jews. Those are very different again. And even so, there is a kind of bond because of persecution, because we've been persecuted in similar ways. So there are times where we rise to the occasion and care about each other. And that happens when you're in situations where you might be the only Jew or there are very few, then you bond. And it is very interesting how that happens. Now, often people say to me, yes, but if you don't believe it really is nothing, it doesn't mean anything. But of course it does, because you may not think you're Jewish. But these days, with all the anti-Semitism going on, everybody else seems to know it. And that's a good question. How do they all know? But people do know. See, this is why I believe in difference and infrathin and so forth. The situation is so different for different people. My husband, Joe, used to say, it's very unfair because Christians don't have to be Christian. They don't have to be practicing. If somebody's Protestant and they don't go to church or even Catholic, nobody says anything. But when you're Jewish, they expect you to behave a certain way. So the whole thing is very complicated. But I certainly feel I have some allegiance, a little bit, not totally and not to everybody, to Jews just by being Jewish. Yeah. And I'm interested in the issues, very interested now in the issues of my own past if I were Italian, I would be interested in knowing much more about that, right? At the age of 13, you began attending the Fieldstone School. And at that time, you decided you were going to change your name from Gabrielle to Marjorie. And you wrote about this transformation saying, speaking German, I was good little Gabrielle, who spoke in complete sentences, knew no off-color words, and I was interested in good books. Speaking English, I was slangier, less polite, more inclined toward popular culture. I wonder if you were aware of this duality at the time. No, not at all. And also if it still persists. Well, that's interesting. Obviously, when you go to a new school, I wanted to be like everybody else. And I couldn't quite be like everybody else because my family was quite poor. When we came to the United States, my father had been a lawyer he couldn't practice the law again here without going to law school for three years. So he became a CPA, which you could do in a year, and lived his sort of intellectual life after hours. I remember his first job, he made $27 a week. We lived in an apartment while my parents slept in the living room, so I could never have friends over at night. Not that I, at the time, considered that bad, but I wanted very much 
to be like everybody else. And there was a very popular girl at Thielsen whose name was Margie. Margie left. So I was stupid enough to change my name. It shows what I was like because my dream was to be like everybody else. And I was embarrassed about my parents and my grandparents who spoke German. It's during the war. I would go on the subway with my grandmother and she might say something in German. I wanted to crawl under the seat. That got to be less so when I got Even by the time I was, say, 25, I didn't want to be like everybody else at all. I wanted to be like me. And my dream then was always to know as many different kinds of people as I could. I didn't want to be in one little grouping of any sort. That became sort of my ideal to be as ecumenical, let's say, as possible, try to understand how other people feel. I like to feel I'm an open person. Let's put it that way. Your third book, Marjorie, is Ludwig Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations. So that's really interesting. Why am I so drawn to this philosopher? And I finally figured it out. It's again, because although Wittgenstein is very demanding, he was more demanding of himself than of other people. And he didn't want to change society. He wanted to change himself which is a rare thing these days and and is what I think is a better thing instead of getting up there and saying, oh, you know, let's get rid of whatever Trump or whatever that he wanted to change himself, that his whole dream was to turn into a better person. But I guess what I like about him, Richard, so much, talk of language. He said, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. That's the kind of theme of the philosophical investigation. He begins with Augustine, that the way children learn language is you point at things and you say tree, apple, orange, table, and then you put them together. And Wittgenstein understood, which most philosophers really didn't, that that isn't the way we use learn language at all. We learn language in sentences. The meaning of a word is its use in a sentence. So for instance, a two-year-old doesn't know the meaning of hope because they have no sense of the future yet. But by the time a child is about three, they can say very well, and they say all the time, I hope it won't rain tomorrow so we can go on a picnic. And then if you ask them to define the word hope, they couldn't possibly do it, but they know how to use it. They've heard adults use it, and they know where it goes in a sentence, right? That's how you learn to speak. And as Wittgenstein says, grammar is always correct. There's no such thing as incorrect grammar. Grammar simply means the way sentences are structured and the way words are put together. And that's very fascinating. And if you want to understand what human beings are and what life is, study those sentences. And also, it's like a negative religion, Richard, or a negative philosophy, because you learn how awful most speech is and how to get around it and how not to believe it. So I put in my new book some sentences from Biden's, except it could be anybody. It doesn't have to be Biden. But when you get a sentence like this, we are not enemies. We are Americans. An absurd sentence. What do you mean? Americans can't be enemies of each other? Of course they are. We are not enemies. We are Americans. Or, you know, these ridiculous sentences. And now on eagle's wings, let us follow history and become more truthful, whatever. All that kind of awful speech, which you can say we've always had in the world, but it's much more pervasive now because you're constantly bombarded every minute of your day online, on television, on radio, wherever it is, you're bombarded with this horrible speech. Is it horrible because it's loose? It's horrible because it's so stupid and because it's not true. It's all hypocritical. 
What do you mean on eagle's wings? Biden said that at a moment where 50% of the country had voted for Trump and the country is completely divided and they are enemies. So he'll say, we are not enemies, we're Americans. It's just a silly thing to say. Why not say something that might be meaningful? There are political realities. There are things you can do. You can improve things. Talk about that. But don't say these things that are just bullshit, in essence. The reason artists have always loved Wittgenstein, I began with Wittgenstein because all the artists I knew and people like Cage, John Cage, copy of Culture and Value was all marked up. He had everything in the margin. Jasper Johns, great lover of Wittgenstein. I remember Joanna Drucker did something called the Wittgenstein Variations. Charles Bernstein. Charles came of age, really, working with the way Wittgenstein used the language that it teaches you what can be said and what cannot be said. Of what one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. If there's nothing you can say that's meaningful, don't say anything. Silence is much better. But don't say all this endless bullshit. As I was preparing for this, Marjorie, I read another interview in which you said that Wittgenstein is your hero, and you cited the importance to you of his statement, the meaning of the world must lie outside the world. That's right. This is the great thing. In the Tractatus, he's trying to write a treatise on logic. It's all written during the war, at the front, under gunfire often, at night. So the Tractatus was supposed to be a logical treatise, and about three quarters of the way through, he suddenly gives it all up. It's one of the great moments. It's like a poem. It really is a poetic text. And suddenly all the logic and the mathematical equations break off, and instead of these endless mathematical equations about tautology and truth tables and all that break off, and you suddenly get a sentence that goes, the meaning of the world must lie outside the world. I believe that. Really, I think. But I think what I love about Wittgenstein and the reason he's my hero, it's a little bit like John Cage. He was absolutely authentic. He just said what he could say. And then it finally ended up with passages like, the world of the happy is a happy world. Now, what does that mean? It's a silly tautology in a way, but it's all you can say about it. What he's saying is you can't define happiness. When you're happy, you know it. The world of the happy, what can you say about it? It's a happy world. And that's very poetic, I think. Everybody from Derek Jarman, poets, composers have taken up Wittgenstein because he is really, in many ways, a poet. And he said, philosophy should really only be written as a form of poetry. And so there we get back to what is poetry? And it's a kind of sensitivity to the language where you know what can be said and what can't be said. In 1953, Marjorie, you graduated from Barnard College, and just a few months later, you married Joseph Perloff, who you just mentioned, completing the erasure of Gabrielle Mintz. You were now Marjorie Perloff. You were so young when you got married, and I know that that was very common for that time. But I wonder what kind of life you and Joe foresaw for yourselves, and also if what you imagined was what actually transpired. Well, that's very interesting. I do think it's awful that I gave up my name. Looking back on that, I can only say I was really a silly person. And I'm sure it was as a form of compensation, but I didn't know that at the time. It was a form of compensation for being a refugee. Everybody took their husband's name, and everybody at that time got married so young, and then Gabriel became my middle name. But in a few years, I started to think, wait a minute, Gabriel was so much a nicer name, but I hated the name Gabriel when I was a child, because people chased me home from school and said, Gabriel, blow your horn, you know, and I was different. Hey, Gabriel. 
it went with anti-Semitism. Boys chased me home from school and called me a dirty Jew, things like that. And I just wanted to be different. Of course, Perloff was even more Jewish. So it wasn't that. I would say this, if you just go by that and the name change, you would think I just gave up everything and became this ordinary person. That isn't quite true because I had a mind of my own very much, even at that time. I refused to live in New Orleans where Joe was from and his family wanted him to go back to. And it would have been the logical thing to do. I just said I couldn't live there. I couldn't live in this racist place. Absolutely not. I always knew I was going to work. At the time, most people were housewives. I always knew I wasn't going to be a housewife. When I had my children, they came first. I came across a set of letters recently that I wrote between 61 and 69. So that was when I went back to graduate school. I finished in 65 and I started teaching and I cared a lot about my work. But at that time, I paid no attention to politics. The beginning of the Vietnam War, I never read the newspaper. I didn't really know what was going on that much. If you ask me, what did I do in 1968? I was worried whether Carrie's teacher did this or that or what they were doing at school or what this child had done. I was completely a mother. That's what I cared about. Many men would have had a difficult time with the idea that their wife was going to have a career in addition to bringing up the children. How did Joe deal with that? Well, he was very proud of the fact that I was Viennese. It's one of the things that most interested him. He was just very unusual. He loved the idea. He started reading the same books I was, all the things I was reading. He loved Goethe. He wrote, he gave, wrote, gave a paper on Goethe as a, and the color theory, Goethe's color theory and science. He gave that at UCLA. He was very intellectual. He had been an English major as an undergraduate and he became a doctor, but probably in another life today, he would probably become something else, but he was very well read. And he also was very interested in art. Culture was like a religion and it remained a kind of religion. So that's what I had in, in common with Joe. And he was very proud of me and he never interfered with my career. On the other hand, you had to make a lot of compromises. Why did I go to Catholic U? Because there I was in Washington. Now, most of my friends would not have done that. They would have tried to go to Johns Hopkins, which was an hour and a half away, and a much greater school. But that I didn't care so much about. I thought it was fine. And it was a handicap. It was definitely a handicap in getting jobs. When we moved to Philadelphia, which was my low point, then I sort of discovered Frank O'Hara, and I did a lot of writing. I did more writing in Philadelphia than any place else. But it was a low point because when we first moved, I had no friends. I was commuting to the University of Maryland, and we had to kind of move because Joe had published his way out of Georgetown, and it was a much better job, and he became the head of cardiology at Penn. It was really hard to turn down. It was, after all, only 100 miles away and 90 miles from New York. So I couldn't very well say no. But when we moved to Philadelphia... It was almost divorced Philadelphia style because I hated Philadelphia, I still do. And the children were away at camp, I remember. I didn't have any friends and I couldn't get a job in Philadelphia. I went for an interview at Penn and I cooled my heels in the outer office of Robert Lumiansky. And at that point, let's see, I was an associate professor at Maryland and I had already written my Robert Lowell book, I think. And not yet, the Frank O'Hara came out. I wrote it in 75, 76. I went into Robert Lumiansky's office and he said, I guess you're here for the modernist job. And I said, yes. And he said, well, you can try to get a job, but I can tell you right now, you can't get it. Well, why was that? That's because I was déclassé because I had gone to the Catholic University. I mean, Barnard was a good enough college, but I was a PhD from Catholic University. That dogged me at every step. 
and I had to compensate for it, but I did compensate for it. And you know what? I think that was good to have to compensate. In other words, I wasn't handed everything like all those people who went to Yale or Harvard. And I think that's maybe a good thing. I think being an outsider is a good thing. And I think being an exile in many ways is a good thing. I am now quite proud that I am an, was an exile. I feel I don't have to go along with all the stuff that goes on. And so when everybody now attacks being Eurocentric, I say, well, you know what? I am European. I'm not an American, really. I wasn't born here. So if I prefer certain European things, that's okay. Those are my roots. It's all right. But yes, it must seem to other people, why in the hell did I become Marjorie Perloff? And frankly, when I see that name in print, I still always wonder, who is that? That's not me. I don't even like that name. And I don't think that's my name. If you see Gabrielle Mintz in print, do you recognize that? Yeah. Well, the Gabrielle certainly in Mintz, sure. Yeah. Because that's who I was. That's who I was. I do want to come back a little later to your European roots, but let's now talk about a book by another European on your list, Marcel Proust. I've been reading Proust during the pandemic. I just opened it at various places. I read it first when I was in England, the year I didn't have a job, the year Joe was at the National Heart Hospital and I wasn't working. So that's 1954, five. I started reading Proust. And you have to get past a certain point, I think. You have to get up to about the third volume. If you get past the second, you'll never put it down. It creates a whole world. Once you get to that third volume or so, you start living in that world and you find everybody you meet is a little bit like Madame Verdurin or like the Duchesse de Guermont. I also read it in French, by the way. And the French is a little hard, but it's so wonderful. And once you've read that, it spoils you for most other novels. When people used to talk about Anthony Powell or, I don't know, Iris Murdoch, you can't read those social novels because they're very superficial. Whereas in Proust, you get the whole world, what it means, again, the passage of time, the meaning of childhood, the meaning of innocence, the account of social relations that is just so beautiful and done in a very different way because it's not realistic at all. Always the surprise. To me, one of the great elements in poetry and in literature in general is surprise, a narrative surprise that you really don't think something is going to happen. You think something else is going to happen and you're so surprised. And in Proust, you have that element, for instance, where he describes his grandmother's illness and death. And that could be so maudlin and so corny. And it's a wonderful passage that comes where he's just going out into the social world. And his grandmother, who's always quoting Madame de Sévigné, that's her favorite thing, she feels sick and the doctor says, there's nothing wrong with her. Take her to the park. Take her to the Champs-Élysées. And they finally, she takes a long time to get ready. It's detail. The detail is so brilliant. And she puts on her hat. And when they get to the park, she goes into the little, quote, pavilion, the bathroom. And she takes a long time coming out. And meanwhile, he talks to the marquise of the bathroom, who won't let certain people in, the woman who runs the little stalls. And then his grandmother comes out, and she just doesn't look quite right. And she makes some comment about the woman who runs the bathroom, and as Madame de Sévigné would say. And then he realizes she's walking crookedly and that she's had a little stroke. And then they go home. And you, I cry when I read it. I think it's so moving. And then you have the whole passage with the doctors and how she dies. And then comes a part where he's very social again, and all he cares about is his personal life. And then a volume later, there's a famous section called Les Intermittences du Coeur, The Intermittences of the Heart, where maybe a year later, some sound occurs, 
And for the first time, he realizes she's dead. And that's when he mourns for her about a year later. And there's the passage about mourning. I can't read it without crying. I think it's so beautiful and so moving. That's lovely. In 1956, which was the year your first daughter, Nancy, was born, you began your postgraduate studies at Catholic University in Washington, D.C. Nine years and another daughter later, you received your Ph.D., and then you went on to teach at Catholic University until 1971. You wrote your thesis on the poetry of William Butler Yeats, and your professor's were not happy with your approach and were quite harsh in telling you that. Yes. One of them brought you to tears and told you that you had to rewrite the whole thesis and then responded to your tears by saying, don't worry, this will make a much better man of you, Mrs. Perloff. <laughs> so Marjorie, you, you were really a pioneer. You well, I had to be. I had to be in the sense that when I went to graduate school, the reason I went to Catholic U, I did ask two of my Oberlin professors who were Protestant, very different, very liberal. And I said, where in Washington can one go? Maryland had lost its football career, had lost its accreditation. The other universities in Washington, which is still not good universities, did not give a PhD. GW Georgetown didn't give a PhD. So there wasn't much choice. And so Frank Wallinger said to me, well, go to the Catholic University. You will actually like it fine. Now, actually what happened, and this is a Cajun theme, this is where Cage comes in, and it's very much like Wittgenstein, is the philosophy, which I very much believe, that you have to take the situation you're in and make the best of it. You don't spend your life trying to change the situation. You try and see what you can do with the situation. But what happened was that I was a fiction person. I wrote my master's dissertation on Proust and Virginia Woolf. The reason I switched to poetry was because I had a wonderful professor, Giovanni Giovannini, even though he was the one who said that cruel thing to me. He was a brilliant teacher and he was a great friend of Pound's. And they always, he and Craig Ladriere, who did literary theory, they went down to St. Elizabeth's all the time and visited Pound. So I got interested in Pound just because he taught it so well and Yates. And then I had a great friend there named Elizabeth Hartley and she went down to St. E's. You know, that's what you did. People went down there. And so that's how I got interested in poetry. And I think much of one's career can be very fortuitous. You just have to be tough. And I did have to toughen up. I mean, I certainly did cry when they made me rewrite my dissertation. But in a way, they were right. It wasn't really right. It got a little better, although it's a ridiculous dissertation. It's all tables and statistics. And, you know, I'm embarrassed about it. But Hugh Kenner of my various books, Hugh Kenner thought that was the best because it was factually accurate. That was your first book, the Yates book. It was my first book, and he thought it was factually accurate. I look back at those things, and I really haven't changed my views of things that much. But when I went to college and graduate school, I did mainstream people pretty much, but I always was a little bit different because I was always a little bit cynical and skeptical of the theory. Everybody else was always doing something. So the big thing was structuralism, and then... There was already the big thing was already semiotics and Noam Chomsky. And then when Derrida, when, when deconstruction came in, and I was always, I always used many of those things, but I was always sort of skeptical. So I think the main thing that covers my whole career is a natural kind of skepticism. You see? I do see. And I'm curious if that skepticism was partially how you dealt with the condescension and the sexism. Yeah, well, as far as sexism goes, you know, my mother was my role model in a way, since she did go back to work. 
And she taught me a lot about how you get through academe. She was a very late starter. She got a job at Columbia in the School of General Studies, but she also worked at the National Bureau of Economic Research Tuesdays and Thursdays. So she could only be at Columbia Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And the Bureau was great because they were all the famous economists. I mean, really, the world famous people were down there doing research at the National Bureau. So that's where she did her real work. She never would have gotten promoted at Columbia if she hadn't been at the Bureau, but she never would have gotten a job at the Bureau if she hadn't been at Columbia. So she said, if they call a meeting Tuesday, Thursday, just don't go, because the National Bureau was down on Madison Avenue. She couldn't do it. Now was a better time. They didn't treat faculty quite the way they treat faculty now. But so she really rose through the ranks by doing that and by being very tough. When I started out, I was also, I was very tough. I just didn't do things. Because I always saved time for my own work because I knew that's what counted. Now, I always had difficult times at Stanford. They wouldn't even let me be in the comp lit department. I was already the president of the American Comp Lit Association. But at Stanford, they voted against me being in comp lit. Because you were female? Because I wasn't theoretical enough. The people at Stanford, the poetry they admired was the antithesis of anything I was interested in. And when they hired Yvonne Bolin, finally, one of them said to the other, well, Marjorie doesn't seem to like it, but what does she know about poetry? So that's what I had to deal with. That's what I dealt with at Stanford. And I dealt with that. USC, not so bad. USC, they were much more open about that. But I always had to be the sort of odd person out. And when the Poetics of Indeterminacy was published, which is in 1981, Wendy Steiner was a very prominent scholar, critic, and she wrote a review of it saying, one can only pity Marjorie Perloff for not understanding this or that. That was the review she wrote in a journal called Criticism. I was very upset. And then that's the book of mine that has done the best, still in print and still selling pretty well. And it's about to be translated into Spanish. So to me, that is what really means something. That's something I wrote in 1981, where many books sort of come and go, you know, critical books, that it's still doing well. And you've also written about the subject of the next book on your list, which is Ezra Pound's Cantos. Well, Pound created a poem out of all these elements, so discordant, and it is a world again into itself. And for sound, there's nobody who could beat Pound. The sound is so magnificent, and the spatial things, the way he used the Chinese ideograms. So he's, in a way, the first concrete poet. You know, my friends in Brazil who adored Pound, Allen Ginsberg, who said, never mind his politics, he's the great poet. All the poets of the 60s and so forth, or he asked Peter Gessie, they learned from Pound because Pound gave them permission to write a poem that was a kind of ragbag that had all this stuff in it that was beautifully put together from these alien elements and that is brilliant. And as far as theory goes, I am a Poundian in believing that do not retell in mediocre verse what has already been done in good prose. Poetry's news this day's news. All those basic principles, direct treatment of the thing, the images principles, composed in the sequence of a musical phrase, not in the sequence of metronome. That became like my Bible as far as poetic theory goes. There are places I disagree with Pound completely. Of course, his politics were vile, and there are many of his things I just can't even bear to reread. And later Pound, that is all true, and I've talked about that. Very depressing. So I don't think he can ever be a writer of the absolutely first rank, because his views, his ethics and politics are so awful. So he can't be somebody of the first rank, but in terms of, let's say, the second rank, he's pretty great. 
I wanted to ask you about his politics and his views because he was awarded the Bollingen Prize in 1949 and you criticised the jury for this, saying that it was too soon after the war to foreground the work of a poet who had Pound's views, views that cannot in any sense be divorced from the poetry itself. But you've also said we have to understand anti-Semitism in the 20th century and not say let's get rid of Ezra Pound, Yes, who also happens to be one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. He is. I understand that you're not completely willing to overlook Pound's anti-Semitism, but... I won't overlook it at all. You have, for instance, given people like Martin Heidegger, you've been much more critical of their political views than you have of, of Pound's. I'm curious why that is. If I begin with his views, his political views were always pretty bad. His political and the anti-Semitism are repellent. I don't even want to hear about them. There's certain canons I can't even read. But despite that, First of all, they always things seem to be more repellent at the time than they're going to seem later. Dante had pretty awful politics, and we don't talk about Dante's politics or refuse to read them. But I will say this. When I read Moody's biography of Pound, I began to really dislike Pound actively recently. I reviewed that book, and I say that in the TLS. It, when you read about how awful he was and how awful his views are, I can't really ever feel quite the same way about him anymore. And I don't like going to Pound conferences much anymore because they always excuse Use the politics there. Now, I guess I feel the way Allen Ginsberg does. Despite that, he was 10 times better than H.G., who imitated him a lot. Yes, he was a, just a much greater poetry. As poetry, it's much greater. Now, I would say he cannot be in my, I should have had Beckett on this list, of course. He cannot be for me, let's say, what Beckett is, because Beckett also was wonderful politically. Beckett is one of the few poets who has admirable politics, who could have gone back to Ireland and sat out World War II, but instead joined the resistance and risked his life every day and fought. So that's what I admire. I totally admire that in Beckett. Pound's doctrine, make it new, has become a core principle of modernism. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that hunger for the new has been a driving force for you in your work and life. Yes. Many critics have built their careers through specializing on one particular area. There are, for instance, countless Pound scholars. Why did you decide to take a different path? I just did what interested me. When I read Frank O'Hara the first time, for instance, who could be more different from me than an Irish Catholic gay male poet? I just found him so fascinating. And I think one of the reasons one reads literature, period, is to get out of one's own narrow little world and get into somebody else's world. So I just found him so funny and such a great sense of humor. And so when I would read Frank O'Hara, I think I was made in the image of a sissy truck driver. He could laugh at himself. And that's a quality I just admire a lot, I think, being willing to do that and not being so solemn about yourself. And see, to me, hypocrisy is one of the worst qualities. I mean, Wittgenstein gave away his entire fortune and lived the rest of his life in a little on deck chairs. Oh, then practice what you preach. Number six on your list is Gertrude Stein, Geography and Place. Geography and Praise is one of her books people don't know as well. They know the individual works, but it was collected in that book. So it's not as famous as Tender Buttons. Geography and Praise contains Miss Fur and Miss Skeen, one of the great short stories ever written, I think. Such a wonderful story of using repetition and writing this brilliant story. It contains wonderful poems like Sacred Emily, which I talk a lot about in my new book. And it is Gertrude Stein at her best reinventing the language. Gertrude Stein is a great 
really transformer of language. She actually really renewed and changed the language. And I will always be very interested in Gertrude Stein and also her meanings in this sense. Most people throw their hands up and they say, well, it sounds great, but it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't say anything. No. If you work on her poems, she knows what she's doing and they do mean something. And her portraits, for instance, I have a long section on her portrait of Duchamp where she has the wonderful line, I was trying to make Marcel out of it, but I can't. Most of it seems illegible, but every line in it relates to something that does relate to Duchamp. And it's so beautifully done. But I think she was really a great writer, a wonderful writer. And Geography and Place is one of her best books. It contains her plays. They're the early plays, like What Happened, which is like being at a dinner party. You could read that out loud. I gave a whole Stein seminar at Stanford, where we read that play out loud, it was wonderful. It's such a wonderful play. Now, I was very happy that so many people were working on Gertrude Stein in recent years, but now it's soured again. And this is what I mean about the current times. Now all people want to do is prove she was some kind of terrible right wing, whatever, or that, you know, she wasn't this or she wasn't that. What has it got to do with her real innovation and how brave she was? She was certainly very daring because she just did what she wanted to do and nobody understood it and made fun of her and all that. And she's one of my great heroes. Yeah. Gertrude Stein was an American writer who lived most of her life in Europe and you're the opposite. But you've said, and you touched on this a little earlier today, the American tradition is not really my tradition. I am a European. The paradox here is really fascinating. What do you mean when you say that you're a European? And how has that affected the way that you've seen American poetry? Well, I'm a European in the sense that I have the European stupid prejudices, I guess, but I do have the prejudices of my time and place. There's now a great revival on the part of good friends of mine, like Jenny Jackson, to revive Longfellow, John Greenleaf Whittier. I'm glad I never had to read those poems. I think they're all pretty terrible. I thought that there really was no 19th century much American poetry, and that even 19th century novels, with the exception of Moby Dick, can't compare to the Russian novel, the French, French anything, British up to a point. But I mean, I felt I don't have to focus on every third rate American writer because I'm not really an American anyway. The day only has so many hours. I wanted to study comp lit. I was thwarted at Catholic U because the complet department was so bad, I couldn't really do complet. They didn't really do complet. So I ended up doing English and American literature. But I always rebelled against the fact that I would have to read, say, Dryden, certain British authors, or Spencer, who I never was interested in, or Piers Plowman, instead of being able to do Diderot, instead of being able to do Stendhal, Balzac, all these favorite writers of mine, or the Russian novel, or German literature. In the 20th century, America becomes very interesting, and then all my favorite writers might have been Americans, although even then that wasn't true for fiction. And I also feel Latin America, I feel right at this current moment, you have in Latin America, I really want to learn, I'm trying to learn some Spanish now, and Portuguese, you have the great poets, you have Vallejo and Andrade. So if I have a chance to read Andrade, these writers, even in translation, not to mention I'm reading right now, reading Pessoa, what an amazing writer with his heteronyms and his assuming of all different personalities. Well, Marjorie, let's talk about an American whose work you do love very much and have written a lot about. The seventh book on your list is John Cage, Silence. Well, I think to me, aside from the Frank O'Hara group 
It's had earlier from Gertrude Stein, the great avant-garde anywhere was the Cage, Cunningham, Morton Feldman, the whole group. Cage just cut through all the crap of the kind of poetry that was being written. He, first of all, discovered, rediscovered Gertrude Stein very young when he was still at college. He realized how great she was. And in silence where he taught us that never mind all the talk about different kinds of music, sound itself is what is so fascinating. And the whole first story of the anechoic chamber and what it means to listen for sound and what it means to become aware of the sound around you. I mean, Cage really changed my life. I think Cage and Cunningham too, that aesthetic changed my life, that the sound didn't have to go with the visual, that you could do new things with sound, and that you could look at writing a new way. After all, he had really nobody to quite teach him that. He'd studied with Schoenberg, and he was always very respectful of Schoenberg. I love the way he talks about Schoenberg, when he'll say he was a giant, and he was my hero in many ways, but I couldn't be like Schoenberg. And he found his own aesthetic, which is the quintessentially American aesthetic. And that side of America, I do love. Totally democratic. Cage was really knew what it meant to be democratic. By that, I mean, he didn't discriminate in class. He was kind of classless, didn't care about which gender you were, was interested in larger issues like how sounds work and how movement works and how the big issues of life work. One thing Cage said to me that I thought was very important is, you know, you know, he said this, that he always answered the phone. And I said, why do you do that? And he said, well, I think it's not, you know, if somebody's calling you up, you answer. He also said to me that with all his, despite all his attitudes, let's say about war and so forth, he said if he had been drafted, he would have gone. He wouldn't have been a conscientious objector. And I said, why, why do you say that? And he said, well, you'd have to take the situation and go with the situation. And if that was the situation, I would have done that. And so I just think Cage is completely unique. He has not been properly appreciated. He's still, I think, not properly appreciated in the United States. I don't know enough music to be able to talk about his works sensibly, but I do know that what Cage stands for is an iron discipline and a total openness. So you have the Buddhist philosophy, really, and this philosophy of always being open, open to new experience, open to new sounds. But Cage had, on the one hand, this total openness, and yet he's the most disciplined person I ever met. He used new material because he felt that art in our time had to be totally new. So dance has to be new. It has to be different. It couldn't be like the ballet with a central figure in Swan's Lake. No center. Act as if there's no center. Wittgenstein had basically that same idea. When living at a time, even more now, where there is no center, there isn't one important group of poets. Cage is, to me, there's just nobody like him. And when I said quintessentially American, I just want to say about the American, that he came from that whole totally American background. He had no axe to grind. If he had to make money giving housewives lessons in Santa Monica, that's what he did. He didn't resent it. He didn't resent doing this or that. He just did it. And that's very American. There's a lovely cage saying, permission granted, but not to do whatever you want. Yes, that's the perfect phrase. Permission granted, but not to do whatever you want. Everything in cage is completely rule-based. You give yourself a rule, and then within that rule, then you can do whatever you want. But that takes a kind of iron discipline that he really had. And so I think he really taught me a great deal. Cage Marjorie was famously a big fan of Marcel Duchamp, who you've also spoken very highly of. 
In one essay, you described Duchamp as the first and probably still the greatest conceptualist. So I wonder how you would respond to the American photographer Robert Adams, who criticized Duchamp. He said, My feeling is that Duchamp has not been a helpful guide. His argument seems to be the one we offered in Vietnam. We need to destroy the village in order to save it. We need to destroy art in order to save art. But at the end of the day, what we have is just a urinal. Well, I just don't agree with that. I think Duchamp is the great art figure of the 20th century because he taught us that can we make works that are not works of art, art in quotes. And by that, I meant, do they have to be paintings? Do they have to have frames around them? Do they have to be paintings? The Impressionists did that. The Post-Impressionists did that. Maybe we can create an art that people would not even know is an art. But did he think everybody was an artist? Not at all. He said the artist is a person like any other. He does his job, and you hope he does his job well, and we should stop fetishizing. Art, that's very interesting. But artists aren't really very interesting. Duchamp taught us how to look. We have one more book. Your last book, which you selected, is Walter Benjamin, The Arcades. The Walter Benjamin Arcades, he sums up a terrible feature of the life of the 20th century. It seems to me that Walter Benjamin is the quintessential writer who tells us how terrible the life of our century really was. Somebody born in an affluent family who could have had a great career as an academic, which he wanted, but couldn't because of the times and never even quite understood how terrible the times were, but somehow created his own world. The reason I love the Arcades Project, he didn't even quite write that to be published. He would have not published it. If you want a study of what capitalism really was, what 19th century capitalism became, what the arcades were, how the attraction of all these objects, the love of gloves and fur hats and the littlest things and barber poles and shops and the beauty of it all. And yet it is all the worst, represents the worst in modern life and what modern capitalism already was at that time. Not that Benjamin had anything really to replace it with. He loved these things, but he was quite open about that in a way. So you get a picture of conflict and a picture of the horror of the times that, again, is not really mitigated. It's tragic. It's not really mitigated by any panacea, any, oh, good, if we have this, then life will be beautiful and we have to make it a better world. It's really going to be this great, better world. He knew there was really no better world. Maybe the past he worshipped in certain ways, but he also knew it wasn't really better. But the minutiae and, again, the detail. I guess if you take my eight books, which, of course, I do very much at random. I could just as well have eight other books. When you think I didn't have Beckett on that list, who was one of my certainly great favorites, I guess what they all have in common is, first of all, a real respect for individual things kind of nominalism for the individual detail in the arcades project where he has those wonderful lists, incredible lists of things. And you don't think of the list as an art form, but the list obviously can become an art form. And look at how amazing those lists were because there's always some item that doesn't quite fit. And then you think what places like that are really like, and it makes you want to go to those arcades. We still have them, but we don't have them in that form. They're not enticing anymore. They've all become kind of uniform. So it's the great moment of modern capitalism, which has now changed again a great deal, and the attraction of it, both the attraction of it and the dislike of it. Marjorie, I have one more question, if I may. 
In your most recent New Year's missive, which I'm always delighted to receive, you describe revisiting, somewhat to your own surprise, the story of Noah and the Ark. This was even before the pandemic struck. And you said that you found this story more powerful and interesting than anything we can ever hope to read in The New Yorker or see on Netflix. So what is it that you found so moving about this story? It's the great paradigmatic tale. It's funny you should mention it because we were talking about it last night. I'm not a believer, but I think if I were a believer, I would say, God said people were getting so awful. I do think that the things in our current, I feel, I'm glad I'm not going to live much longer. I do truly feel that way. I don't want to live much longer because I feel the world today is just so awful. Well, I feel that if they were a God, he would look at all these people today and say, got to build, have a new group. This group is just too awful. The things they care about and the things that are important to them and the things that matter. And let's just destroy the world and try to start over. At the end of each interview, I ask my guests to read a short passage from one of the books that they've chosen. Marjorie, what are you going to read for us today? I'm going to read Milk by Gertrude Stein. It's in Tender Buttons. A white egg and a colored pan and a cabbage showing settlement, a constant increase. A cold in a nose, a single cold nose, makes an excuse. Two are more necessary. All the goods are stolen. All the blisters are in the cup. Cooking. Cooking is the recognition between sudden and nearly sudden, very little and all large holes. A real pint, one that is open and closed and in the middle is so bad. Tender colds, seen eye holders, all work, the best of change, the meaning, the dark red, and all this and bitten, really bitten. Guessing again and golfing again and the best men, the very best men. May I say a word about it? Please, yeah. I just want to say it is simply a portrait of milk boiling. It looks like a white egg in a colored pan and a cabbage showing settlement, a constant increase. And then in the course of the poem, you get cooking is the recognition between sudden and nearly sudden, very little in all large holes because it's boiling over. The milk is boiling over and you better watch it between sudden and very sudden. And then it goes all through that in the dark red and relates milk to sex and so forth, and then guessing again and golfing again, and the best men, the very best men. Marjorie Perloff, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Richard. This has been Acts and Facts. I'm Richard Craft. My thanks to Charles Curtis for allowing me to use Captain Hume's Galliard by Tobias Hume as the theme music for this podcast. (laughs) 